Welcome to the Union Jews Podcast. The UK's only All Things Union podcast, designed for your downloadable digital delight and appreciation. In this special episode, why the Match Girls strike of 1888 is still relevant today, and the campaign for a permanent memorial. We'll hang O'Brien's on a sour apple tree. We'll hang O'Brien's on a sour apple tree. We'll hang O'Brien's on a sour apple tree as we go marching in. Glory, glory, hallelujah. That was the Pete Dunhill choir singing. The Match Girls song, taken from the Working River collection of songs. The Match Girls strike of 1888 holds a special place in British history. It is often cited as one of the first recorded industrial disputes, if not the very first. The story of how 1,300 girls and young women working with deadly white phosphorus at the Bryant and May Match Factory in London's East End said enough, attracted immediate support from sympathetic, high-profile activists like Annie Besant, the Times newspaper, and the nascent Salvation Army, the latter building a rival match factory with safer products and better pay. The strike spawned a political, social and moral legacy that is still felt today in the spheres of union organisation, safer working practices and women's emancipation. But if you seek a monument to the match girls, you will search in vain. Yes, there's the odd roundel set into the pavements of Spitalfields, a celebratory poem on a board in the 2012 Olympic Village, a prize-winning poster in the TfL Museum's collection. That is what the Match Girls Memorial Charity seeks to put right, a permanent and suitable recognition of the dispute and those who took part in it. The latest development in the campaign is a book of prose and poetry inspired by the strikers. We'll be hearing from the winning entrants later in the programme. First, here's Samantha Johnson, chair of the charity, on how she discovered her own family's connection with the strike and how that led to the campaign for a lasting memorial. Sam, your great-grandmother was very influential in the Match Girl strike, Sarah, Sarah Chapman, but how did you even find out that she was involved at all? So it was very strange. I mean, very, very late on, in fact, only the end of 2016 that I found out by complete accident. So I've been doing some other family history and uh, I'd been urged by other family members to investigate the uh, the male line of, of my father's family. And so I just basically typed into Google uh, Sarah Chapman and Charles Henry Dearman, who was my great-grandfather, he was the one I was interested in. And then up popped this forum on Ancestry.com that, that where um, a lady called Anna Robinson was appealing for information about Sarah Chapman because she had been a, a match girl in the famous 1888 strike. 
Wow. So this, I know, this is what I was faced with. And, and of course, I, I checked some of the other details that she gave. And, you know, they spoke about Sarah's, Sarah and Charles's daughter and that she lived in Bushy and all of these things. And I thought, this is my family. This is the, these are my great grandparents. And it was just, it was a, a real moment of revelation. And, you know, I remember actually I was working that day. It was a Monday morning and I, I basically told Graham, we were so excited. I think we spent the whole day Googling instead of doing it. It's been um, nothing short of a roller coaster ride ever since really, because, um, you know, we've got more and more into finding out about the story and what Sarah did. So yeah, it's been a fantastic journey. So, and, and what was Sarah's distinctive contribution uh, to, to the dispute? So, I mean, she she was, you know, obviously one of the, you know, the 1,400 girls and women that went out on the strike, but she joined the strike committee um, and we believe that she was one of the three who went in to speak to Annie Besant the day after they went out on strike. And then also, because she was on the strike committee, she would have been involved in various activities they did, you know, speaking in public, they went to Parliament to meet MPs, and she would have been in the thick of that. Afterwards, they, after they won the strike, they formed a, a union committee, and Sarah was elected to be on that. Um, but I think the, the one thing that makes her stand out from, from the others is that she was the first one to be chosen to represent them at the TUC mm. later that year. You know, I think I think during the strike, she was, you know, she was one of a number of them that were kind of, you know, leading the, the kind of call for change, etc., and speaking to the prominent people of the time and the newspapers and the MPs and Annie and her colleagues in the Fabian Society, etc. But I think that's that's the thing for me that that does make her, you know, stand out because what it says to me is that they wouldn't have elected her to represent them if she hadn't been a strong, forceful power for them, you know, during the strike. So I think that that kind of speaks volumes. Gosh, it, it, what a, you know, what a story to come across and to, de- and, and, and to develop. And, and it led to the formation of the Match Girls Memorial Fund charity. So That's right. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, basically, as I said, we discovered this in late 2016. And, and the first thing that happened was, you know, that we, went to discover Sarah's grave. So Anna Robinson, who who actually it turned out had written a whole thesis about Sarah, we, we tracked her down and found out and she was able to tell us where Sarah's grave was. So we went to find that. And that kind of kept us interested for a year because you know, we told you before of the, the um, campaign, we have to try and save the, the grave from being mounded. But then as, as we got more and more into the story and found out more and more about it and did more research, we, we just realised what just an amazing story it was. And significantly was that there was no memorial, no yeah. permanent memorial to the Match Girls in the East End. And we felt that this was, was definitely something that needed to be corrected. So we set about setting up this, this charity and we formed the charitable company in March 2019. And we, we now have a almost 20 strong team of people who represent unions and, you know, activists. And there's other descendants on the, on the team as well. And we've just got a fantastic uh, group of people that are helping us kind of forge ahead to, to, to meet the aim of, of getting a statue and, and other memorials. In fact, we're, we're not, you know, we're not. Um, just set on statue it could be a, a mural or you know other plaques and things like that to represent the the different things that all of the match girls did As we go marching. 
March Girls at Whitson, 1888. They clatter out of the paragon, fringed, feathered, foul-mouthed, singing at voice tops, filling the air with sparking exuberance, arm in arm, a battalion in beer, cheeking the chaps that catcall from curbsides, offering to treat them. Mary doubles up with laughter so hard, she says it makes her teeth ache. At each alleyway and street corner, they turn another girl loose until only two are left to say goodnight. Maggie becomes a song disappearing into darkness. Sarah, at the lodging door, hopes Mrs Meany has glued herself to sleep amongst finished boxes stacked high on the table. Hopes she isn't waiting up with a, what time do you call this? Hey, you'll catch it when they lock you out for half a day. A whispered baggage. Fossy jaw set to chew so hard at Sarah she has to look away. Hopes there'll be no out on your ear if you don't make the rent. To follow her up the wooden hill to a damp bed shared with a killed mood. To work rosary beads through her fingers. Pray for change. Wake in the night with a start to see her work things glowing away on the chair like an omen or a visitation. That was Sam Johnson, chair of the Match Girls Memorial Charity, followed by Emma Purcellhouse, reading her poem, Match Girls at Whitson, 1888. The legacy of the strike in terms of drama and music is comprehensive and varied. Graham Johnson probably knows more about this than anyone, so it was great to chat to him to get an overview of a crowded space. He'll be followed by Debbie Rolls reading Saturday Night. The Match Girls were were clearly important to their families and their, 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 their descendants, but there's a wider resonance, a wider connectivity between the Match Girls and the, and the dispute and lots of other things as well. Uh, well, the, the connectivity is in, in, in how they all suffered from uh, working in the factories and in home. The factory that uh, we're talking about, Brian and May, was set up in 1861. And by then, uh, phosphorus had been discovered and was being used in, in creating matches. In the UK, a chap called John Walker is credited with producing the first friction matches, but he didn't use phosphorus. And phosphorus came in, it was invented, uh, or the phosphorus match was invented around about 1830 uh, by a Frenchman called Charles Soria. And so matches started being produced using this white phosphorus. And um, by 1938, or there about 38, the 40s, uh, cases of necrosis were being uh, discussed. Now, in, in necrosis meant that uh, the, these workers using uh, the, the phosphorus compounds were absorbing it because, of course, they, they, they stayed at their workstations for food and all the rest of it and all day. And the people working at home would have had phosphorus around as well. The, the manifestation of it was uh, problems with their jaws, usually. Eventually, teeth dropped out and and bones began to dismantle and and people actually literally could lose their jaws. And and this is known as fuzzy jaw. This is the word that you will will come across. So there were loads of cases of these. Uh, It wasn't the only danger. 
children would be little kids would suck on matches and they they would die there's reported cases of kids dying just through sucking on matches um and by 1852 dickens was reporting cases in his newsletter and so there, there was a there was a lot of problems arising from the use of this so-called white phosphorus by uh, 1860 in london there were reportedly 29 small factories producing matches and these were like small industries no no control over conditions whatsoever and, and then in 1861, the Bryant and May factory opened. They, they took over um, an old candle factory and crinoline factory in Fairfield Road. So uh, the fuzzy jaw was a problem. Numerous cases were reported. Even in, uh, in the 90s, uh, they were still producing, so I've got a figure here, of something like 36,000 million matches all using this so-called white phosphorus. Wow! And, wow. and so uh, the problems were everywhere. But it, but it didn't. The production process didn't have to be quite so dangerous, did they? Because the Salvation Army set up an alternative match factory, I, I believe. Yes, um, red phosphorus uh, was was uh, invented, which was safer. Uh, but more expensive, difficult to actually produce and much more expensive. And so despite the fact that this was available, um, many factories, including uh, Brian and May, continued using the white phosphorus. But the uh, Salvation Army, William Booth, of course, had, his, has, had ideas of how to, what he thought he could do to change society. And one of the things he did was to set up a a factory using red phosphorus, where not only were the working conditions safer, uh, but they also paid uh, his employees more money than was usual. This was set up in 1891, uh, ironically only about half a mile from the Bryant and May factory. They went into production and it was called the Lights in Darkest England, their products. Unfortunately, um, they, they eventually went out of business um, some 10 years later it, because of the costs involved, but they had made a huge impact. And, uh, and eventually, uh, um, by 1906, there was a thing called the Berne Convention in Europe when European countries came together to try to see what, what they could do about the use of white phosphorus. European companies signed up saying they wouldn't use it the UK didn't, and I've yet to identify exactly why the UK wouldn't sign up to it. Uh, but eventually, um, the, the UK industry uh, was controlled by an act which banned white phosphorus, and that didn't come in until 1908. But even then, the companies were given two years to to get away from white phosphorus. So it wasn't it wasn't actually illegal to use white phosphorus until after 1910. Gosh. Gosh, so 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 twenty over twenty years after the Match Girls strike. Yes. My my goodness. Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. And and of course but the Match Girls strike as well as eventually leading to the banning of white of white phosphorus uh, has has spawned many there's much interest and respect and admiration which expresses itself in in all sorts of in all sorts of artistic endeavors doesn't it i mean the the, the impact the the strike had uh, culturally shall we say manifested itself first of all 
in uh, uh, 1939-40 when Robert Mitchell wrote a play um, in 1940 called The Match Girls. And, and this this went around the country in because he was with the Unity Theatre in London and there were branches of the Unity Theatre Unity Theatre throughout the country. So uh, this went around the country and it even went, um, I, I've got records of it being in Australia in 1945 in Sydney. It was a bit of a, it was a tragedy uh, in the much, as much as the heroine dies in the end. But it wasn't until the middle 50s that we, we began to see what we know most people know today, which are musicals about the Match Girls. And uh, this was, uh, again, put together by Bill Owen and Tony Russell, who wrote the lyrics. And um, this, this, this play, this, this musical, eventually made it into the East End, into the, sorry, into the West End uh, in 1966. But at the same time, there was another play, another musical in the, in the West End called Strike a Light. And this was by a lady called Joyce Adcock, and she started her life working in the Leeds Arts Centre. And her play had gone around Glasgow and other places, and her, sorry, her musical had gone to Glasgow and eventually ended up in the Piccadilly Theatre in the East End, in the West End. I've got so used to saying East End, I can't say it. <laughs> in the West End uh, in uh, 1966. And the interesting thing about uh, her play particularly is that um, all the other plays, they with the Match Girls, they use a first name only. In, in Strike a Light with Joyce Adcock, she actually, her lead character is Sarah Chapman. <laughs> so that's the, uh, the story of the plays. Um, music, uh, Match Girls have influenced music in as much as um, uh, even today you can find... Um, um, Recordings people have made of, um, uh, you know, there's the battle hymn of the Republic, John Brown's Body Lies a Moulding in the Grave. Well, the Match Girls are known to marching along the, the, the East End singing, they, they'll hang old Bryant on, on the old apple tree to that, that, that very same tune. There were songs uh, created for the anniversary, the 100th anniversary, by a chap called John Prosser and Bob and Jill Berry, a song called England's Glory, and more recently, uh, Matt Hill at the People's History Museum in London, in uh, Manchester has uh, recorded songs about the Match Girls. But I suppose the most common thing that people will probably know of is a piece of music called Spark Catchers, written by a young composer called Hannah Kendall. And uh, her, she, she had... Uh, uh, her first performance at the proms in 2017 and it seems it, it it seems that the story of the match girls is so embedded in uh, across such a wide range of of um cultural um ideas formats and, and expressions and yet there is still no memorial to them no, no, and and which is which is like peculiar, isn't it? If it's if it's something that 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 for good reason, so many people feel an empathy with in so many different ways. There's just that missing step to yeah. commemorate their role in our in our history. Yeah, well, we we hope that the publicity that we are creating will will inspire someone to step forward and say, "Hey, I want to do a film. I want to do this. I want to do that." As we go marching. Saturday night. We put on our armour on a Saturday night 
dress, pressed as well as can be, sponged down, then placed between bedstead and mattress. Boots blackened with soot, so the scuff marks won't show. But it's our heads that make other heads turn. The heavy earrings that sway when we walk. Hats make a statement. Feathers floating above us in all colours of the rainbow. The dockers might unload goods from faraway places, but we let them know there is nothing more exotic in the East End than us. Nor anyone more determined. We're not looking for whistles, a glass of gin or good-looking boys. We're here to find support, to tell our story. Tonight, we're speaking to the Trades Council, listing the reasons why we had to strike. How Bryanton May find us, made work dangerous, refused to listen to our grievances. When Annie Bazant exposed their exploitation, they tried to scare us into submission. Now we speak for ourselves. Saturday means solidarity. Collecting our strike pay together, explaining the justice of our course to others. Match girls would dance again on a Saturday night. Today, we are dressed for battle. As we go marching. Debbie Rolls reading her composition Saturday Night, preceded by Graham Johnson on the Match Girl's artistic legacy. There is a distinctive resonance of the Match Girl strike to today's politics. I'd argue that Sarah Chapman and her fellow strikers would see similarities with the Me Too and Black Lives Matter movements. Director, writer and activist Polly Creed, and Neil Jameson, who's been described as the first and most experienced modern-day community organiser, tell me about how the events of 1888 relate to today. Polly, if I could ask you first, what, what is the, what's the relevance, if you like, the legacy, the, the, the resonance of the Match Girls dispute to kind of youth and community-led activism today? I think there's amazing parallels with kind of what, what happened then. You know, you saw sort of 13, 14-year-old girls. We know, you know, some of uh, the young women were that age who were on the strike committee. Um, leading this kind of this, this group out on strike. Um, it has massive kind of parallels with, I think, what's happening today with the youth climate movement, with kind of other, you know, feminist movements. Um, and I think there's a real lesson to be learned as well, drawing on the past, in particular, I think, kind of socialist um, and union history and kind of injecting that into the kind of current wave of activism that we're seeing. So much of which is based online, which is really powerful and means that these, the you know, there's a kind of um, democratization of activism and of the kind of, of platforms, but also learning lessons from these amazing women and men that have gone before us um, and kind of the more traditional roots as well of kind of, of that activism. And I think just as well, rediscovering these moments of history where I think a lot of the time, you know, it's really easy to sort of disparage young women, teenage girls. Um, they're kind of often depicted in the media as kind of just screaming over sort of One Direction and boy bands, but actually realising that, that there's this kind of amazing radical history of young women often being leaders, often really kind of rallying other other young women. Um, and I think 
in particular just kind of recognizing as well that the impact of the the match girl strike potentially on other kind of union movements so for, for example the docker strike but also thinking about uh, women's rights in general and just really recognizing that it was it really started with this kind of these working class women many of whom were from migrant backgrounds um, and making sure that it's not we don't just think about you know middle class uh, feminists that were very uh, suffragettes that were very sort of privileged but thinking about people perhaps that are often overlooked I, absolutely, absolutely, and, and you referenced the, uh, the the dock workers' strike in eighteen eighty nine, the year after the Match Girls' strike. And, and Neil, you, the, the political legacy of, of the Match Girls, I mean, there is a clear link, isn't there, between what they did and then what the Dockers did, and and subsequent events as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm a community organizer, and I've spent my time as an organizer trying to teach what other people have said before: is that all change comes from the margins. Uh, the Match Girls strike is a classic example of something which was sort of invisible. It wasn't capitalised on by anybody, really, until, frankly, the Match Girls Memorial came along, uh, which has made it much more popular and up-to-date. And as Polly says, it's got lots of messages, particularly for young women, uh, about how change takes place. When I came to East London in 1994, I did study the history of East London and wanted to do something which was... Um, to, and my job was to build an organization of local people to fight for justice and so on. And so I fell upon, because I didn't know the story before, the story of the Match Girls, because I do think that those women were either daughters of or married to or partners of the men who then decided the next year that they had to do something. And it's very important to make that distinction. The first industrial strike, as I understand it, was by women. And that was called the Match Girls Strike. It, it happened. A lot of help from other people and so on. But nevertheless, without the courage of those young women, it wouldn't have happened. It then led to the next year. To, you can imagine people talking over the pub and what have you to saying, oh, what's, what's, your, what's your partner doing now? What's your daughter doing? And, and then they would have talked. The men would have talked, definitely, because uh, the women still played a part in the Docker Strike by feeding the men it, for a long time. Because, of course, they got no money once they strike in 1889. But that is relevant for today, that basically uh, this movement started with women. The Dockers strike started, the whole well, was cemented, the trade union movement itself. The Transport and General Workers Union came out of that, now called Unite, came out as a result of that strike, basically. The Labour Party came out of that. So the sequence of women doing stuff then the men doing stuff, then they're beginning to organise. And then, of course, the Labour Party in um, Keir Hardy, the first Labour MP, was actually elected by an alliance of friendly societies and other groups. It wasn't really, the Labour Party didn't exist until all of that stuff had happened. So very re relevant for today, and particularly very relevant to this, for the history of most change comes from the margins. It never starts in Parliament. That's what we got completely gaga about. Everything has to happen through Parliament. In reality, change comes from people like those young match girls who said enough's enough. And, and in terms of the history of the East End, I, the match girls and, and, the, and the dock strike also started a process of, of, of transformation. I, I understand that the, the way in which that part of the capital developed and regarded itself changed. Um, yes, absolutely. It was it was a combination of bad conditions of course by what what seemed to be Bryant and May I'm a Quaker myself 
They were Quakers. But it was the Quakers led the uh, abolition of slavery stuff. So none of us is perfect, which is very good. But without the match girls striking, the Quakers would not have known that they were, or would maybe not even have cared that they were causing such distress and such physical harm to these young women whose only way of getting any resources was to work there, whatever happened. It was also very relevant to this formation of the Salvation Army and this combination of the army then, much more radical than they are today, setting up an alternative factory for making match matches that don't poison people. That was a very good action by the, the radical Salvation Army by William and Catherine Booth. All of those fantastic things happened around about that time, which leave us what we are today, so that people have got to continue to organise in order to see off social injustice well well that's that's what i wanted to say and that takes us back to to the work that you're, you're doing polly and the the, the the match girls musical that you are writing composing uh, as well the notion of citizenship and of, of that being something that is that is is valuable that that is not kind of god-given as it were or, or comes from comes from the sky it's something you have to you have to develop and build and fight for and the solidarity that that is part of of a notion of citizenship is, is are those are those ideas that we see expressed today? Can you trace those back uh, uh, as well? It was 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 were the Match Girls the the core the cause of that, or, or a, a fundamental iteration which gave it the momentum that's carried it forward over a hundred years? I think so. I mean, whether it is traced back enough is the question. Whether it's really kind of acknowledged and celebrated. I think it, it was part of this kind of moment in history where there was so much happening. And I think the match girls were kind of absorbing that in the East End and would have had kind of political agency and awareness as well, which is something that's also overlooked sometimes in the story. I think sometimes it, when it is taught in schools and things, there's this idea that, you know, Annie, Annie Besson came along and kind of who had this, you know, had a major role to play but that it was kind of overnight, it came out of nowhere and sort of this idea of you know, striking and things would have been completely um, sort of alien to these women. But I think that, you know, from what we do know about them, it shows that they did have kind of political agency and were kind of engaged. But I think it was part of a kind of wider web of, of things going on at that time. Um, but I do think as well, it was a massive, and to, to excuse the pun, a spark that led to kind of huge other social change. And I think that Neil's right as well about change coming from the margins. You know, I was thinking about as as you were speaking about the Me Too movement and the fact that, you know, that started off, I think, in 2006 or 2007 as a kind of it was a really marginal movement that was started by a woman called Tarana Burke. And then, you know, gradually over time, it was kind of picked up by Hollywood and suddenly kind of thrown into the spotlight in a different way. But it always, it, you know, most of these movements come from uh, marginalised communities sort of doing it for themselves and then, you know, get picked up by um, the sort of the press and the, the fashionable sort of elite at the time. Um, and I think that's something that would be really, I think we need to recognise more today, especially with kind of a lot of the act, you know, tokenistic activism that we see, but we're really kind of tracing it back to grassroots movements as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean you know, the match girls. Anyone who teaches the match girls or looks at the match girls as as history is kind of missing the point somewhat. I I, I think, Neil, what do you think would be the most appropriate memorial for for the match girls? 
In a way, it, it's not so much the statue or the pictures or the paintings. It is exactly what Polly's doing. We've got to fight this narrative, negative narrative, that change comes from Parliament, sometimes from the king or the queen, people are taught. When I went did history, it was who was in who was king at the time. They had more power than now. But basically, there would have been people like the match girls always. And of course, they exist everywhere. Young women, young men, older men, what have you. And, and as Polly says, frankly, the the movements which we've seen grow up in the last few few years, really, you know, Black Lives Matter. It's another example. It's quite helpful if Hollywood picked this up, but it's not helpful if they if they then make it uh, just the pretty ones get involved or just the really eloquent ones got involved. The, those young women must have been a mixed bag of poor girls who somehow had the backbone enhanced by a few celebrities coming along. Annie Bazant, uh, George Bernard Shaw, of course, played a significant part as an ally of them. You need these allies. The press were very helpful then. The press now are so narrow, and, and people don't turn to the press for much, really. But the role of the East London Advertiser, who constantly, and the Times, the Times was very good. They reported on the on the strike. That really got the Bryant and May panicking. Of course, with the Dockers' strike, uh, the Cardinal got involved. So there were alliances which are quite difficult to do these days, particularly with the press, because really there's only one or two uh, newspapers that would report on something as this as something serious rather than frivolous and troublemaking or something. It was it was historic. And so if we can get a statue up and if people will help us with the resources, to a certain extent, I don't mind where it goes. Uh, so long as around there is the story through teachers and the right teaching of history is that you could do this. It has to be, this wasn't, this is relevant to what we're doing now. It's to, so relevant to the plight of women is still relevant, absolutely relevant to some of the things that happen uh, and the plight of uh, minorities and people of color and so on. Uh, organize, agitate and teach people how to do this. And on, on that point, uh, Polly, I mean, what are the sort of educational resources that, that the trust can can offer people if there are if there are teachers in, in any sector of education who will be listening to this? What, what are the sort of things that, that can be provided off the shelf? So we have um, together with uh, Louise Jordan, who is a musician and songwriter. Together, we've created a kind of a pack that's a, a six part pack that is um, an introduction to match girl story um, but also a kind of uh, delve into the, the world of protest songs so connecting the the story of the match girls with today and that's available on um, the first video is available on youtube but if people want to get in touch and access the full series they can access that and we're also able to we're kind of developing more options in terms of drama workshops you know we're really really keen to kind of work with young people um, and i think coming you know connecting with what neil said it's that idea of visibility um, and I think growing, you know, for me growing up, I'd kind of, I'm a sort of in my mid twenties now. So the, you know, the stories I I've, I've heard about, uh, I heard about um, strike action was, you know, my mum talking about the miners' strike was, you know, people you know, talking about um, the the sort of poll tax, all of that, and it felt to me like that that kind of radical history was something that really belonged to white men, and I think that just. This story for me feels like the story that I wish I'd known when I was, you know, 13 or 14. Um, and just just that idea of seeing people doing it that are, you know, similar to you. And I think often when you're that age as well, and you're especially for young women, it's really, you, you know, you're plagued by self-doubt and just even kind of speaking out in your own voice. 
um, it can feel very kind of daunting. But actually seeing, hopefully learning about the story offers kind of insight into the fact that anyone can do this. Anyone can speak out against injustice. You know, one thing that Polly said really, really did make me think it's about how, you know, you could you could do this now. You can always speak out against injustice. That's the, the real golden thread that links the Match Girls with what's happening today, because there are certain things that demand a response that can't be left alone, that need to happen to create a fairer, more just society. And they speak as loudly to us now as they did 120 years ago. Let's have uh, our next reading, which is from Eleanor Walsh, who is reading her composition, Strike Anywhere. Strike Anywhere by Eleanor Walsh. At the bench again, match fingers working from memory. You're reliving last night's ostrich feathers, the colour of the sky that hangs over the factory's high ceiling. Glue and dust growing now like an extra skin. Pretty, weren't you? In the music hall, everyone said so. The double-ended lucifers in your fist require only friction. Not along the red edge of the box, but anything at all, and you think of this when the other girl has sixpence swiped for a tray that topples from her hands. Only friction. A bright fissure through the air that sounds like breaking before the flame finds its way. And you made it yourself, didn't you? Admit you're becoming ostrich egg. Bulge under the jaw and tooth cracking sound, pushing scared fingers into your throat where it swells. You're heavy enough to drown, growing new bones. You are incubating, pipping. Breaking up when you bite down, but last night alone you sang the words at the ceiling after the show and thought of the ostrich feathers that moved on the dance floor as if they could take flight. The blue of the great outdoors. With matches breaking in your wet fist before raining down, you hear the same old music play now as you push through, through this cruel eggshell, a flames fissure through the air that sounds like breaking. They're scavenging pennies from you, but you're suddenly starving and sobered up, balled up and matchbox small, like a fist for the fight. I hope you've enjoyed spending the last half hour or so in the company of the Match Girls. My thanks to Samantha, Graham, Polly, Neil, Emma, Debbie and Eleanor for making it happen. If you want to find out more about the dispute, the strikers and the campaign for a permanent memorial, you can visit matchgirls1888.org from where you can also buy the anthology of poetry and fiction we've had readings from. There's a companion blog for this podcast over on the makesyouthink.com website, giving you all the links, signposting and background to what we've been discussing and also to the writers we've heard from. The Working River collection of songs, including the Match Girl song that we've drawn heavily on in, in this episode, is available from gftu.org.uk. It's a great collection of songs and you might like to look up the Union Dues special episode on the Working River collection available from the podcast platform of your choice. You can contact the show by email to unionjews at makesyouthink.com or tweet us at jewsunion. Feel free to let us know what you think and suggest other themes for one of our special episodes. The Pete Dunhill Choir will play us out, but first there's time for one last reading, Painters by Emma Pershouse. 
by Emma Pursehouse. She stops by the bench, the dog yapping at bow churchyard pigeons. She glances at my Tesco Express name badge. Lunch hour read, she asks. I wave my book at her. Yeah. You into art? I give up. Yeah. You? Me? She's distracted by council workers arriving. Maybe. A little. You draw. More of a painter. What kind of things? Hands, mostly. Difficult things, hands. She looks at me then, sharp eyes staring straight into mine. You an artist? God no, unless you count arrangement of product onto shelves. Oi! She makes a sudden beeline for the workers. Leave it! The workers ignore her clean stains from the statue's upturned palm. She looks shaken. Let me buy you a coffee, I say, from across the way. I return, find her sitting on my bench, dog snuffling at her veined hands. I perch beside her and it pours out, her tumbled, jumbled lunch hour history lesson. Now, then, blood on hands, slaves, match girls, coffee beans, zero hours, sweatshops, remembrance. That night, she foots the ladder. I redaub Gladstone's hands, match head red. As I attempt to return her paint, she refuses it, pats my hand. Yours now, dear, she says. Ask him how he'd like it if his wife got fussy jaw. Ask him how he'd like it if his wife got fussy jaw. Ask him how he'd like it if his wife got fussy jaw. As we go marching in, glory, glory, Union Dues podcast is presented by me, Simon Sapper. It is a Makes You Think production.